millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Why Would You Tell Me That, a podcast that explores the stories that we don't know, but we probably should. Uh, Neil Delamere is leading this episode. I'm in the dark, just like you are. Let's find out what Neil has in store for us. Hello, Dave Moore. How are you? I'm great. And yourself? Um, Very, very good. And looking forward to talking in part two to a very interesting man. We're going to talk about the Moriori people. Moriori? Yes. Have you ever heard of the Moriori no, people? No, I haven't. Well, we are going to talk to a barrister, uh, Maui Solomon. He's a well-known indigenous rights activist and a barrister and mediator and negotiator in New Zealand and the Pacific and, and internationally. And he is the chief negotiator for the Moriori Treaty Settlement. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what happened to the Moriori people in the 19th century, it was tragic. It was a genocide. Um I think it'll have resonances for conquered peoples around the world, if I can use conquered in inverted commas, because yeah. um, they didn't, they chose deliberately not to fight back, actually. So I'm using that in inverted commas. Um, and some of the wrongdoings of it are only being addressed now, but I will let M- M- Maui explain more. The Moriori, I will say to you, um, are the indigenous inhabitants of the Chatham Islands, which are about 800 kilometers off the South Island of uh, New Zealand. But because that is quite serious, uh, we have an unrelated part one, because I, I don't think it would be quite appropriate to lump one thing in with a subject like that. So let me start part one with a question. Dave, do you want to know how a crab saved you from COVID? Uh, yes. First of all, <laughs> thank you to Mr. Krabs and his wonderful Krabby Patty establishment, which plainly did something that I didn't know about. But yeah, what happened? Well, that, I'm glad you said yes, because if you'd said no, this would be a very short <laughs> podcast. Scientists use horseshoe crab's blood to test for the presence of bacteria in vaccines. Test for the presence of bacteria and vaccines. Okay, right, 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 right. right. There's a lot to unpack in that one sentence. So, yes. sorry, scientists use horseshoe crab's blood. Yes, this, now I've seen the video from this. It looks crazy. Pharma companies, they, they collect horseshoe crabs, right? Or they get people to collect horseshoe crabs sure. on a grand scale, like hundreds of thousands of them every year, and they bleed them. This is now, 2022. This is right now. They bleed them. And I've seen pictures of them, like row after row of them, hooked up to IV lines. Do you know the bit? 
You know where Neo takes the pill in the Matrix and we yeah. see what we're actually attached to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's essentially what it looks like. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just I can't get my head over the fact that, sorry, scientists are bleeding cra- horseshoe crabs yes. for our benefit. For our benefit. Let me explain. Okay. So there's all these lines with all these drips coming out of them, or mm. IV lines, whatever. I suppose it's not a drip if it's coming out of you. It's not putting anything into you. And they're bled. And they're, the, their blood is blue. Because of their diet, uh, which is mainly aftershock. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. For a second, because I was so enthralled by your, your, your what you've brought so far, I was trying to think of what animal limpet, uh, what 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 coral is called aftershock, and then <laughs> then it dropped, and I was like, okay, no, that is not true. Their right. their blood is blue, but it's blue because of the amount of copper in it. They, ha- they do have blue blood, which, sidebar, we live now in such an immature world that period product ads are more realistic for horseshoe <laughs> crabs than for human beings. <laughs> Sorted out advertising industry, please. So they take about 30% of their blood from them and then they release them. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay, sorry. Because my next question was, why are we killing all these horseshoes? So we don't, so we bleed them. See, bleed sounds like, emptying yes so is there is there a more correct or softer scientific term for like we we gently extract the blood <laughs> from the horseshoe uh, well, they've all signed release forms these horseshoe crabs <laughs> they're, they're absolutely fine with it we give them some digestives and sweet tea afterwards but that's they don't even give them that not a pint of guinness <laughs> nothing for 30 percent of your blood that is phenomenal okay so and when they're released I might, yep. I might be jumping the gun here, but are they, they are, in, are they in a fit state to continue or are they otherwise compromised versus a, and I use this term carefully, full-blooded horseshoe <laughs> crab? Um, the studies have said that they are certainly lethargic. And okay. uh, as you can imagine, if I took 30% of your blood, you might feel a little bit shook, a little bit under the weather, particularly if you didn't get your biscuit or whatever <laughs> they give you. Have you ever donated blood? Do you know, I haven't. It's one of those things where I've always said I should do that, and then I've never done it. So I've no, I've no excuse really. I have done it, and um, it's a good thing to do. They do ask you a lot of questions on the form. They ask you, "Have you ever paid for sex using money or drugs?" Was one of the questions. Right. Which I mean, that's a fair enough question. The other question they asked me was, and they ask everybody, um, "Have you ever been paid for sex using money or drugs?" <laughs> right. And I'm looking at the nurse going, "What do you think?" <laughs> <laughs> That's unfair on yourself, Neil. You're a very handsome man. Do you think that somebody would... I wouldn't get butter vouchers and lemsip for this? <laughs> what an exchange! <laughs> there is that. There is that great joke, which is, uh, "I'm never going to donate blood again." All those questions, like, "Whose blood is this?" and "Why is it in a bucket?" <laughs> Well, yeah, slapping it out of the boot of your car. <laughs> yeah. I would ask questions for like uh, to test moral probity. That's what I would ask. Oh, okay. I'd be like, do you eat sweets sometimes and put the wrapper back into the box, thereby allowing other people to think that they're more sweets than they actually are well, in the box out of the clinic immediately? <laughs> Welcome to having children. Do you eat everything that's in some packet and then put that packet back into the press or indeed finish yogurts and put the empty yogurt cartons back into the packaging that they came in, giving the impression that there is indeed a fridge full of yogurt, at which point another child cries because they've all been eaten, licked clean and replaced. <laughs> Not the chill. The, no, no. The yogurts. I mean, we, we, we bleed 30% of their blood regularly. <laughs> yes. just, to, just, just to get them to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. 
does this sort this sort of stuff this doesn't uh, freak you out? You're not squeamish about blood or anything, are you? Well, I would say like say no. I'm fascinated by the human body and all those things. However, there is anecdotal evidence to oh. the contrary. Okay, so about ten years ago. We had a what we call a granny fridge. And I don't know how this is going to translate around the world, but a granny fridge basically is a fridge and freezer that are below counter level in your kitchen. Oh, thank God for that. I thought you had some weird... <laughs> fridge where we kept granny. <laughs> funeral directing business. <laughs> no, no, no. Morgue. Okay. <laughs> no. So a granny fridge is basically that. So one, like, you know, so two presses side by side where it would look like it's two presses. You mm. open one up, one's a fridge. One's, that was just how the house came when we bought it. We were like, yeah, fine, until we got ourselves a nice fridge or whatever. So the, the day the new fridge was arriving, my job, of course, was to remove the fridge freezer that was there to have them ready for collection, for recycling, whatever. Yeah. So we had replaced all of the handles that were in the kitchen with beautiful ceramic handles with lizards and uh, exotic birds and insects on them and they were really nice colorful handles so i was i had unscrewed all the screws and i was shuffling the fridge out of its former home using the handle on one part of the door and the part of the fridge the, the big body part of the fridge and what happened was the ceramic handle shattered wow in my hand because of the force i was putting to try and pull it out and you know so you hear someone owns a ceramic knife Yes. Ceramic is literally the sharpest thing. It probably isn't the sharpest, but it's it's so sharp that simply by it breaking off in my hand, and, and again, we should probably have a trigger warning for anybody who is squeamish, um, a, a large section of my finger was heaved from itself, <laughs> um, to which I grabbed it, uh, as, as people tend to do, and I ran over to the sink and ran the tap in the idea that somehow cold water will wash the blood away and make yeah. me feel less weird and in pain or whatever. My wife is sitting on a sofa down the other end of the kitchen. And as I was doing this, she went, oh, my God, are you OK? And I said, no. And I uttered three words which have followed me around since. And I have no idea why I uttered these words, but I uttered these words as I was falling faint to the ground. I said, call my father. <laughs> Now, Neil Delamere, I have never called my Alpha father in his life. In my life, he's my dad, possibly dad. When I was small, maybe daddy. But I never called him father. But I literally turned into some kind of Victorian son. And I proudly said, call my father as I collapsed slow. I didn't faint. Like I said, I didn't like flop to the ground. I gently kind of kneeled and then lay and then passed out. That, oh my God. What I love about, I don't know why I find that so funny. I think it's <laughs> that if you lose enough blood, you become quite formal. I quite yeah. like like that idea. It sounds like you were aware of your impending death and wanted to get your affairs in order. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> That's exactly what it it's, sounds like. He's my next of kin. <laughs> And whatever the opposite of the of an heir is, yeah. I wish to bequeath things to people. Call my father. Prepare my final papers. <laughs> I shall here expire. Like I don't know what. Like and she fell around the place laughing. She was obviously a little bit worried about me, but also realized that I was being 
uh, you know, as much of an idiot. But you fainted, though. I did faint. It it wasn't blood loss fainting. It was because of blood. Yeah, pure, like, I saw, well, there was more, again, trigger warnings for people, like, I don't want to freak out. Did you see bone? Yeah, there was bone. There was white stuff. It was all terrible. I ended up having 37 stitches in my finger now. I'm trying to show it to Neil. I don't know if you. Oh wow! I, no, me. I can see that. Yeah, you see that's because obviously we're we're on yeah. camera here. Uh, there's a scar all the way around the finger, and let me tell you, one stitch in the tiny bit of flesh that exists on the inside of your finger is searing agony. Thirty-seven. At one point, I was just like, "Do you know what? Can you just finish me off? Like, I, I'd rather just just chop the whole thing off. I can't do this." I really hope that as a memorial of that day, that they fridge is still where you left it with a bit of ceramic handle hanging off and it. a pool of blood caked yes. onto the floor with uh, uh, and then over it hangs a uh, a framed beautiful calligraphy set that says call my father <laughs> no uh, swiftly we moved on to a giant smeg fridge that is still there to this day does the job it's all grand well you would be no good in this situation if the pharma industry suddenly wanted to bleed you no. But they're never going to do that because you don't have the magic ingredient in your blood like the crabs do. What What do they need? So you're saying this actually, it's not that it's part of the vaccine. No, the blood is extraordinary, right? right. So this blue blood, if any sort of bacteria gets into the bloodstream of the crab, the system produces these things called amoebocytes, right? They have a chemical in them called coagulogen, um, if that's how you pronounce it that encases this bacteria in this sort of gel and then the system can attack the infection. So scientists get the horseshoe crab blood, get the coagulogen from it. That's what it it reminds me of. Coagulogen from it. And they can use this um, to make this thing called LAL, which is limulus amoebocyte lysate. And if you have a vaccine and had bacteria in it. Right. Even if, if you have a vaccine and it had a bacteria in it, even if it's one part per trillion, yeah, this chemical will find it and it just it's an instantaneous test. So my question is, does it prove the presence of a bacteria in a, in a vaccine or does it eliminate? It doesn't eliminate. It surrounds right. it like a, like a gel and forms a little jelly that's quite stable even at room temperature. That's what the original scientist said. So then they can determine that this particular vaccine mm. is corrupt, as in it has yep. bacteria in it? Yeah. Okay. Vaccine, medical implement, uh, injectables, pacemakers, implants, wow. all of this. The FDA actually says that uh, vaccines and, and drugs have to be tested using LAL in the US. But like, think about the implants one. Uh, you get a new hip, right? Yeah. The implant has been tested using crab blood. So you're in the gym with a resistance band around your knees, you're not trying to strengthen your glutes around your new hip, and you're doing the same walk (laughs) as the thing whose blood (laughs) tested the hip in the first place. It's the circle. (laughs) The circle of life. It's unbelievable, isn't it? That is phenomenal. And sorry, given that we are now in in the future, I mean, we're we're in the present, but you know what I mean? We're we're at a stage in science where surely they can synthesize LAL, no? They are trying to synthesize it. Yeah, yeah, particularly in Asia, parts of Asia. But up until now, right now, they're still bleeding crabs. 
something like five or six hundred thousand crabs a year and they don't know the mortality rates of the crabs necessarily they're talking about 10 20 sometimes maybe 30 percent we're not sure yeah i mean because this is the big issue is a you know if it was utterly harmless to Mm. the crabs which i doubt it is but if it was utterly harmless you would say okay well then surely you if you can, you farm horseshoe crabs in order to do this and, and catch and release and catch and release and whatever. And after a period of time, you go release to the wild or whatever it is. But, I mean, do we know anything about the populations of these crabs? Are they in any way threatened, as is, irrespective of whether they're being bled of 30% of their blood? Well, there is an argument that um, some people have said that the fact that we need them might actually help conservation efforts because before that they were used as fertilizer and they were ground up and they were used as bait as well. So there is an argument that says, well, if we need them, then we might mine them more. But the reason I saw this is because I saw a tweet about this and it was, I think on business insider, we we can put it up on here, right? Yeah. This, it was about the price of it. Oh, The, the stuff that makes the LAL stuff. Is sixty thousand dollars a gallon? What half the price of diesel at the moment? <laughs> no. <laughs> what? Sorry, sixty thousand dollars. How expensive is this in 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 the world of expensive liquid? Is this more expensive than Chanel Number no. Five? Well, I'd say I would have thought it's expensive enough to have some sort of black market. I would have thought there's a very good chance that if you go down to Henry Street in Dublin, there's a fella there in a leather jacket and inside he just has a lobster attached to a bottle of Blue Wicked. And it's like, oh, I'll give you that for 30 grand. That's got to be one of the most expensive liquids in the world. I don't know, I'm not good at knowing how much things cost, but surely to Jesus, that's ludicrously expensive. Yeah, but it has been used to test everything. I mean, you have pins in your legs. I do. I have a titanium plate and I yeah. have one, two, three, I think I have seven screws. Right. Uh, again, I, I've already told the call my father story. I'm not telling the leg break, the ankle dislocation story today. Let's save that for another day. But yeah, so I presume that would have been tested for back, the presence of bacteria before it was screwed into my leg. Yeah. So I've had LAL. You've had LAL. And L-O-L. You've, had your, you've You've had a vaccine. You've had several vaccines. I have. Probably tested with LAL. There's a little sideways walking crustacean walking around <laughs> well, off, I thank- off the Delaware coast. Go on. <laughs> You're welcome. I thank my my crustacean brothers for their generosity. Obviously, they had no choice in this. Yeah, that is something I object to. People talking about, yeah, yeah, this is how they donate blood. They don't donate. There's no <laughs> there's no donation involved in this. And I heard a fishman no. say, oh, we catch them, we borrow their blood, and then uh, we put them back in the sea. And you're going, there's no borrowing either. Because yeah. borrowing would suggest paying back. You don't go and catch the same crab and inject its blood back into it when you're done with it. It's a very Jerry? much... <laughs> Good to see you again. How's life been down under? Oh, really? She's giving you hassle. Well, come here, we re-inject you. Give you back what we took off you and you'll be virile again, you will. I wonder, does it have any effect on things like virility? I mean, I wonder, do like, you know, is there like some stud muffin horseshoe crab walking around getting all the chicks? And then it's like, oh my God, did you hear that Jeff got bled? Oh, <laughs> gross. I'm not hanging out with him anymore. Is it only Jerry's and Jeff's are crab names? I'm just interested know. in the, the first <laughs> names that you went for, which you're just thinking, well, it's not Seamus because it's Delaware. So <laughs> Jerry the crab and Jeff the crab. Jerry and, and Jeff, great lads. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk to Moe. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? Now we have Moe Solomon on the line. Uh, he is a well-known indigenous rights activist and he was the chief negotiator for the Moriori Treaty Settlement. Thanks for talking to us today, Moe. Uh, you're welcome, Neil. Good to be on your program and uh, talking to you guys in Ireland. Can I start with the most basic question for people on this side of the equator who might not know anything about the Chatham Islands? Who are the Moriori and how did it come to be in the Chatham Islands? Well, the, the Moriori are the, what we call the Wainapono, or the uh, indigenous peoples of uh, Rekohu, Chatham Islands. And our ancestors, uh, the very first uh, settlers came here on double-hulled waka, or canoes, from central Polynesia, and so settled here on the island. And then for a period of time, there was some contact with Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and some canoes from New Zealand also came down. Uh, this is, you know, seven or eight hundred years ago. So there was a, a period of exchange between the Pacific and New Zealand and Ekohu. But then that ceased about six, seven hundred years ago. And that's the people we now know, or we call Moriori, evolved our own culture, language and identity here on Rekohu. So Moriori are the indigenous people of uh, Rekohu, Chatham Islands. Were you completely isolated for a period of time when there was there was no more contact with, with New Zealand? Yes, correct. So for at least half a millennia, uh, 500 years or more, there was no contact between Rekohu, Moriori and the outside world. So that when um, 
when Europeans first arrived here um, on an English sailing ship in 1791, Moriori called them sun people because they, they thought that they'd um, come from the sun right. because they were all dressed in their fancy uh, British naval uniforms. They thought they, they were women <laughs> because they, they were wearing pantaloons and things like this. So that was the first contact that Moriori had with the outside world was in November 1791. So, you know, for, for 500 years, I'd lived pretty much in isolation and in peace on these islands. I'm glad you mentioned peace there, because if the British, when they did meet them, they would have remarked upon something that is quite unusual, I think, to a lot of people. If anybody knows anything about the Moriori, what they will know is this remarkable pacifism that had, that's embedded in the culture. Maybe you talk to us a little bit about that. Was this mainly from, uh, and I'll, I'll try and get the pronunciation properly, uh, Nanuku Fenua? That, that's correct, Neil, and good pronunciation. So when, when the ancestors of Moriori first arrived here, they were a warrior people, like most Pacific Island nations. And so there was fighting and kill, killing and, and even cannibalism. But um, it, it soon became apparent to the, to the leaders that if they continued killing one another on a small island, um, they'd wipe each other out. So this um, legendary tuhuk or spiritual leader by the name of Nanuku Whenua, he came among the people and, and decreed that from that day forward, they live in peace and share the resources of the land and the sea, and he also laid down a curse that the, um, the day you disobey, may your bowels rot. He also realised that wherever you have two humans come together, there's going to be some sort of conflict. So the law was that you could fight with a wooden staff, twice the thickness of a thumb and the height of a man, first blood drawn, honour satisfied, no further fighting, and certainly killing was was outlawed. So that became the, known as the covenant of peace that was passed from one generation to the other and, and became their custom law. Um, and anyone who violated that covenant was ostracized from the collective, from the tribe. And, and in a communal society, if you're pushed to the outside, that, that's the end. So um, the people obeyed for many centuries and that's how they lived here on these islands. And Moe, do you have any um, documentary evidence of, of what life was like when this period of unbelievable, listen to it now for the first time, unbelievable peace and harmony, and I suppose what we all dream of as a people, but in reality sounds almost impossible to achieve, certainly in the, in the 21st century. But do you, are there records of, of how, what life was like for the, for the people uh, on, on the Chatham Islands at this point? Yeah, there's, there's been quite a lot that has been written and some oral traditions that have been passed down by the ancestors and have been recorded in various publications. So we do have um, some insight into what life was like. One of the useful things that Lieutenant Broughton, who arrived on the Brick Chatham in 1791, he and his senior officers, as they did wherever they went on their colonising missions, was to accurately record in their diaries the life and detail of the indigenous cultures they encountered. So we also have records from Broughton's diary and his first mate's diary that um, even though they only stayed for a couple of days, 
those uh, those records are, are quite important in terms of what their canoe technology was like, what their net making was like, the, the physical appearance, um, some of their coastal habitations and things like that. And and then there's obviously the records that Moriori have left themselves about um, how they lived. So you've got seventeen or eighteen hundred people living peacefully uh, on the islands, eight hundred kilometres off the the coast of New Zealand, and then. They've done this for hundreds of years, and then in 1835, you get two ships of Maori. They come over to the Chatham Islands, and what happens next? Just on in terms of the numbers of people who are living here, it's estimated that as many as two and a half to 3,000 people populated Rekuhu, the main island of Chathams, and um, also Rangihoti or Pitt Island. There would have been, it's estimated, between three and 500 people lived there, so it was quite um, quite a large population compared to, you know, we have a, a population today of only 600 people. So mm. clearly Moriori had adapted very well to living in this, in this environment. And, you know, there weren't sort of ships bringing in freight and planes and things like that. They, they were just entirely dependent on the resources that, that were here on these islands. When uh, Europeans or the British first arrived in 1791, obviously conveyed knowledge of of the islands and their location and um, that there were seals and and whales here so sealers and whalers arrived and um, so that that had a significant impact on um, Moriori culture because many of the seal colonies were destroyed and seals were an important source of food and also clothing they used the the seal skins for clothing and some diseases were, were introduced as well but um, not not as much as what history has recorded. But then in 1835, two Māori tribes from New Zealand who were based in Wellington, Ngāti Mutung and Ngāti Tama, they invaded the Chathams on an English sailing ship, the Lord Rodney, and they were brought here in two boatloads. And Moriori thought that they had, like a lot of ships, had been coming and going in the previous 20 or 30 years, thought they were just here for a short period and then would move on so they hosted them looked after them fed them nursed them back to health because they've been packed into the tightly into a ship's hold for about 10 days and were dehydrated and starved but as soon as they got their health back um, these two tribes began to um, walk the land and slaughtering and enslaving cannibalizing Moriori as they went so that my ancestors had a, a large gathering a hui and a thousand people debated over three days what, what their response would be. And the young men, although the young men wanted to fight back against the invaders, and, and they were a powerful people as well. They were very strong. But the elders forbade it because they said to to break with their ancient covenant would be to uh, lose their mana or their power and authority and honour as a people because they placed the uh, power of life and death in the hands of their gods. And so they um, decided that they would renew their efforts to offer peace and to share the, the island with the um, with the newcomers, but that was rejected. And so from 1835 to um, when there was probably around about 1,700, 1,800 people on the island at that time, maybe 2,000, by 
1870, so that's one generation later, there were only 100 full Moriori surviving. So, you know, there'd been a massive population collapse. And in fact, what had happened was genocide. You know, this this happened on the the watch of, of the Crown. The New Zealand uh, colonial government knew what was happening and, and did nothing to intervene to stop it because Moriori were just an inconvenient truth to the colonial government at that time, which was busy stealing land off, off Māori in New Zealand. So they were quite happy for Māori to stand, steal land off, off Moriori. Yeah, that's, that's the, um, the tra- tragic but true history. But then the, the, the Crown did know about this because they literally were written a letter. In 1862, one of the elders, uh, Hiroanu Tapu, wrote a letter, didn't he, to the Governor-General and, and, and said, we are the subjects of the Crown, we should be protected. And this is a list of 1,500 names of people who have been killed or died. Yes, correct, Neil. Um, Hiroanu Tapu did write to uh, Governor Gray in 1862 and, and listed all of the names of the men, women and children who had been alive in 1835, and um, there were about 1,700 names on that list. And he had put two crosses beside those people who had been killed and eaten, and one cross beside the names of those who had died, either through brutal treatment or a disease or a, a malaise known as kongingi, where, where people just died of despair. And, and the way that, that they were treated at that time you know, in the in the early part of the 19th century, was probably not unlike how survivors in Auschwitz were were being treated, subject to brutal labour and brutal treatment, and being malnourished. And many many people just gave up the ghost and died. But that wasn't the first letter that had been written either. Bishop Selwyn was down here in 1841, so that was, you know, a very early period, and had written to the colonial government saying, look you know, this is what's happening here, you need to intervene. There was a succession of letters and people coming here and making entreaties to the colonial authorities, but it, they did nothing. Over a period of, of 35 years, they stood by and let this happen. So the, the petition that Hedewana Tapu wrote in 1862, it was a 131-page petition, and it drew on the knowledge of the 33 remaining elders at that time, he, he went around to each of those communities to record their traditions, their songs, their migration stories. You know, I often think, Neil, that, you know, he would have been doing that as the 33 elders would have been under probably pain of, of death if they were caught because, mm. you know, there was it was a, a fairly oppressive environment for Moriori even in the 1860s. So, you know, you can imagine sitting in a small ponga fern hut, you know, by candlelight writing out this long petition. And it sought and implored the colonial authority to release Moriori from slavery, to return their land, and to bring English justice to these islands. In fact, that's what they say. They say, come to set this island right, is actually a quote from that petition and that letter accompanying the petition. Mo, if I can ask you then, this this pacifism code, and forgive my pronunciation because I only heard you guys say it once, but is it Nunu Kufenwa? Yes. Was there a resistance? I know you mentioned that some of the young men would have wanted to fight back uh, initially, but, but when the elders decreed that 
we must you know stick to our code stick to our beliefs stick to everything that we've we've grown and, and lived in for 500 years was there a point when the oppression got so great that they were ever in a position to reconsider that hmm. that's a that's a very good question dave and um you know to be honest i've often thought how i would have reacted had i been at that gathering in um at Pātaki, one of the thousand debating i probably would have been amongst those young men wanting to fight back mm. Because although I'm Moriori, I also have Māori, Irish, English, French and German ancestries. I come from a long line of war makers, peacemakers and whiskey makers. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, it, it is a good question. And there were some Moriori who resisted. But basically, by the time 1862, you know, when, when you're treated as Moriori were treated and your population collapses as it did, and you're demoralised, you're weakened, there, there really isn't anything you can do. And is it fair to say that propaganda essentially has been used against the Moriori people in terms of dehumanising them and telling myths about them so that a certain narrative would be suited? That is true, Neil. You know, Moriori having lost our, our life, our land, our liberty, our language, the final insult was really that historians in the um, late 19th century, started to write these stories about how Moriori were inferior to Māori, subhuman species, and therefore deserved to be supplanted by the superior Māori culture. And this suited the colonial narrative of the day because, you know, whites, according to this narrative, were superior to indigenous people and supplant them as the uh, majority culture. And to make matters worse, Moriori were then placed on mainland New Zealand, and this was part of the myth that they had colonised New Zealand before Māori and then had been pushed out to the Chathams by later aggressive Māori tribes. That didn't happen. That is a pure and utter myth that was specifically created to justify Europeans colonising Māori and push them out to the Chathams. So the rationale, well, if Māori can do that to Moriori, Europeans can do it to, to Māori. I said, Moi, that you were the uh, chief negotiator for the Moriori Treaty Settlement. And um, the the recent settlement, there was a return of land and an apology and a settlement fee. But what jumped out at me was the ag- agreed account of history. And I suppose that is to counteract those myths, isn't it? Yes, uh, we, we signed off our settlement. Um, last year, and in fact, it became the law of the of the land on 16th of February uh, this year. And an important part of that, Neil, as you say, is the historical account, the agreed historical account between Moriori and the Crown. And that's probably one of the most important aspects of our settlement, because that will be the the touchstone for any historian or anyone wanting to to know the history, there is now an agreed historical account that they can refer to. It's writ large in our the law of this nation now for all time. And th- there has been a cultural re- renaissance since the, since the nineteen eighties. 
And from the all the accounts I read now, you're probably too modest to say it, but I mean, you have been at the very core of of fighting for this particular cause. Where is the culture now, would you say? Where is the language, for example, uh, at this stage? I saw from one of your presentations that it hasn't been spoken since 1900, but, you know, modern technology is being used to put Moriori songs on Spotify, for example. And so where are we now? Yes. What I often say, Neil, is is that over the last 20 or 30 years, we've been busy rebuilding the, the hardware. We've bought back land. We've built a beautiful Moriah traditional meeting house. We employ over a dozen people. We've got some assets back. We've just signed a treaty settlement. So we've got the hardware, but the important software or the knowledge, the language, the songs, the, the, the karaki, the invocations is the next big step for us. So relearning our language, relearning our karaki, our prayers, our songs, our stories, and instill that software into the people. So that's probably, for me, is the most important thing that we as Moriori can be doing in the coming generations. And it will take generations to, to revive our language. It hasn't been spoken fluently for a very long time, but that we have a lot of written material. 50% is substantially similar to, to Māori and other Pacific languages, it would be possible to become almost fluent one day. That's the dream, that's the aspiration that that will happen. But like any culture, probably like the Gaelic languages, even in Ireland and in in Wales and in Scotland and, and elsewhere, you know, it's been possible to revive these languages, but you need to have people who become champions of those things. And of course, as you would both know, a language is absolutely integral to the culture and identity of a people because the language contains so much information and knowledge and wisdom about that culture. Yeah, in in a previous episode, we spoke to a diversity linguist, actually, who told us about the Chitimacha language from an indigenous tribe in Louisiana who were very small and very quickly one of the first tribes to actually be attacked by the invaders when they arrived in the Americas. But their language was somehow preserved on wax cylinder recordings. And then it hadn't been heard for 70 years. And then somebody found the wax recordings, digitized them, sent them out. And now there's, there's definitely a program in, in the Chitimacha tribe now where they pay people to learn and speak the language so that it can be revived, so the Chitimacha can be spoken again and that people can become fluent in it. As you said, the Renaissance effect that can have, the, the importance of a language to a culture cannot be understated. I think that's really important, Dave, and I'm glad you raised it because um, threatened languages, um, you need to reach out, you need to to have support from others as long as there's a a respectful engagement and acknowledgement of the holders of those traditions. There's a phrase in Irish, it's Tir Gon Changa, Tir Gon Anam, which is a country without a tongue is a country without a soul. So that's mm. probably very much in keeping with, uh, with the uh, Moriori sensibility on these things as well. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you from across the world. I had to try and figure out the time zones <laughs> because it's not 12 hours, it's 12 hours, 45 minutes. Um, and we didn't get into your Tipperary uh, uh-huh. ancestors, which we talked about over email. <laughs> very proud of them. I am too. We'll check in with you again and see what uh, what progress has been made in the, in a couple of years when we do season fifty five of our podcast. <laughs> but thanks a million for talking to us today, Moy. Neil, could I yep. 
finish with a, a Moriori karaki, a, a, a blessing. Of course. <sighs> that would be incredible. This karaki is about a sort of the renaissance of, of Moriori and cultural identity, like the phoenix rising from the ashes. And this is how it goes. Tongi e tangari hu tawaki mui tahuna. Koi tenga mokupu runga mai whenua runga mai tere. Koi tamu wanuku, koi tamu waurangi. Koi tamaruru hawa papatunuk. Tahi tenga moatara, tahi e koi tamarehu atani. Me tahi koi runga, tahi e tanui, tahi e taroa. Werohia te ata, poka mena tai, merongo. In peace. Thank you so much for that. That was amazing. That was amazing. As we say in Ireland, Gurumila Mahago, thank you so much, Maui. That was incredible. All right, guys. Yeah, lovely to meet you both. You too. Thank you so much, Maui. Appreciate Maui. it. Okay. Wow. Neil Delamere. Thank you for introducing me to Moe Solomon. That is, that's an incredible story that just had so many twists. Like, to find out about a people that I've never heard of who were persecuted in the manner in which they were persecuted, submitted to genocide, mm. to have that story twisted and turned to suit the narrative. That, that is incredible. I mean, look, it, obviously, it happens all the time. It, as you said, it was it's effectively propaganda. But just to think that having gone through so much that then they faced this, even in 2022. There are certain commonalities. I mean, I wouldn't compare anybody else to what happened to Moriori. But when you read some of the othering and the dehumanization mm. and the banning of the culture and, the, you know, the almost the punch magazine, what happened in Ireland, you know, it's entirely different. But you can see how people write something that suits them. I just think it's a fascinating story. And I came across it originally in Guns, Germs and Steel, a book. And it was a, it was what Moe said there about originally being warring people and then going to a place with few resources and figuring out a different way to live and becoming pacifists. And it's a testament to the human spirit and our adaptability as well. And they were obviously thriving, as he said, slightly undercooked the, 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 the population. I thought it was 17 or 1800, as he said, two and a half thousand, three thousand. That was the most interesting thing to me out of the entire thing was that these people living an isolated life, with, as you said, with limited resources, figured out that conflict was going to lead to strife they couldn't contain. So that what they did was they literally created peace, peace enshrined in law. And I know we all have that. For goodness, our, our own police force is called Garda Shiakana, Guardians of the Peace. We all have it as an aspiration, but, but it, it, it's impossible for that to actually exist. However, it's not impossible. Yeah. You know, as he said, you needed to batter somebody over the head and draw blood with a stick twice the width of a thumb. So, you know, there were ways of dealing with the That's angry the venting. Neighbor. That's yeah. the venting system, isn't it? So when your neighbor throws his grass cuttings over your uh, over your wall, you just go out to him with two um brushes sellotaped together and go, "Right, let's have a duel." What you, what you don't want is some dude on the island who has massive thumbs. You know, and then you can just use just just <laughs> Get cricket back, Tony, and he just comes out, and you can use a like the length of a of a stump of a tree or something. But yeah, uh, they worked out a system until it all came crashing down. Um, but I thought Moe 
He's a great speaker. He he is the chief negotiator with the crown on the treaty settlement. So he's right. the man to talk to. So beat that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will have to try next week. It'll be my turn to bring something to the Why Would You Tell Me That table. I'm going to tell you, Neil, about the movie that broke Netflix. Ooh, that could mean many things to many people. I look forward to it, David. Thank you as always. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. We're at Why Would You Tell Me That? I am at Dave Today FM. Neil is at Neil Delamere Comedy. And uh, I have a date in the SSE Arena in Belfast in February. That is a massive thing. So please come along to that and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.